I'm Charlie Hipwood, CEO of Mass Ventures. And I'm Stacy Swider, an investor at Mass Ventures. And we welcome you to the Fundable Founder, where we'll be exploring relevant topics for technology entrepreneurs to help them succeed in raising capital and in growing their businesses. As a founder who started and ran three companies, I didn't know what I didn't know when I first set out. <laughs> but you eventually figured things out, right? For the most part, through trial and error and mentorship. But now as a VC, I'm frequently advising entrepreneurs on the same topics. So Stacy and I are here to share that earned wisdom with you, along with the experts that we interview on a variety of subjects. We are. The roadmap to a successful startup is at your fingertips. So turn up the volume and grab the keys to success for your fundable founder journey. Okay, hey, welcome to another episode of our Commercialization Accelerator. Today, I'm joined by Mike Volpe. Uh, Mike is CEO of Lola, which was recently acquired by Capital One and former uh, CMO at HubSpot and Cyber Reason as well. Welcome, Mike. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. This is going to be fun. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I know um, you've got a great background in sales and marketing, and I know a lot of first-time founders just their head explodes when they think about what does go-to-market strategy mean? What is sales? What is market? How do I price things? There's just so much to learn. Uh, so we're going to talk about the basics today. And let's just start by talking about what is go-to-market? What does that mean? Yeah, it's the collection of all the different activities um, of for the commercialization of the business. So figuring out how you want to talk about your product, who your right customers are, how you think about pricing, how you're going to find those customers, how you're going to serve them. So it's kind of sales, marketing, service, all those things collected together. Uh, and I do think it's important that people think about those in the beginning as a collection of activities. Okay. Because a lot of times if you think too individually about, well, I'm going to do this in sales and this in marketing and this in service, they may not be well aligned with what the strategy needs to be for the company. That's great. So that all sounds really overwhelming as a first-time founder. Where, where do you start? What are what do you what are the first steps you take? What are the things you think about? Well, I think you can think about go-to-market as sort of the the bridge that you need to build between your products and the customer. That's a great. And you can have some flexibility on who exactly the customer is, and certainly the products can have some flexibility too because you can build and change different features and things like that. So you think about it as almost like this, you know, uh, canyon that you need to cross. And you can pick to some degree where the starting point of the bridge is and where the ending point is, but you need to have that starting point and that ending point, and you need to be able to connect those two, right? And so if you think about it that way, I think that's maybe not a bad framework to sort of start with. Yep. Um, and once you're there, then you, the questions you want to ask yourself is, you know, it, is this a, a simpler product to buy? Is it an expensive product? Is it an in, inexpensive product? Is it something that's really complex? Is it something where people have some idea of what it is, but the version that you're selling is sort of better? Mm -hmm. Or is it something where people, it's so new that people don't even have a framework in their head for what is this thing that they're going to be potentially buying and why would they need it and things like that. So if you start to ask yourself those questions, then you'll, I think, start to think about, is this something where there's going to be a lot of education, a lot of handholding? you know, maybe a longer, more complex, um, you know, sales and marketing process, uh, things like that. Yep. The other questions you want to ask yourself, is this a product appropriate for big companies or small companies, right? And it is, it's like, no, this is like the problem that this product solves tends to exist more in very large enterprises or tends to exist more in very small businesses. 
that tells you something too, because you're selling to very big enterprises. It can be often very hard to sell them a really low price product right. because they have by their nature co complicated sales processes, right? <laughs> so it's like, you need to think about the size of company you're selling to, um, the complexity of the sales process. Is this an existing product category where you're sort of a new entrance, but you have a much better technology? Or is it something where you need to create a new category? That's another kind of big dimension. So there's kind of like a lot at play there. But if you start to think about all those individual questions, you can start to boil down and say, okay, for us, we're going to have a simple sales process and we're going to sell to small companies. And then that kind of points you in the right direction versus, no, no, we need to create a brand new category and we need to sell to very large enterprises. You're going to start by doing some very different activities. That's right. And so how... How do you, I mean, a lot of founders come to me and they, they say, hey, I've come up with the greatest idea and everybody needs this, right? How do you really hone in on who needs it the most <laughs> and how you're going to sell it to them? How do you decide if you're going to do enterprise sales versus small to medium businesses? It's, it's, it, can be, um, it can be a complicated question, right? And there's even more models than sort of just, you know, enterprise versus kind of smaller too. I think that... Um, some of the questions you can kind of ask yourself are not only, like you said, like what are the companies that have the most need for the product, but also the ones that are most willing to buy and most willing to buy more quickly. Yep. So sometimes a larger company might have a really strong need, but maybe they already have three or four similar products. And as soon as they talk to those vendors, those vendors are going to say, oh yeah, yeah, that's on our roadmap for next year. Right. Yep, yep. And they may, and it may just be really, really hard to get them to get the six, eight, 10 people that need to agree on something in a big company to buy it. And maybe in that case, even though maybe the pain is a little higher, the pain that you solve is a little higher in a big company, maybe the fastest path to more customers, you know, the first 10, 20, 50 customers is going to be in small companies. Right. Um, so I think it's it's partly weighing the pain that those companies have, but also weighing the sort of barriers to sales and how easy and quickly you can get them on board. I do think when you're first starting out, it's more important to get customers quickly than to get customers that are going to pay you the most money, mm -hmm. um, you know, or, or have the best logos or things like that, right? So it's more important to get kind of, you know, 5, 10, 20, you know, more customers quickly. So you're getting that feedback, you're learning from each of those interactions, things like that. I have seen early stage startups say, you know, we need to sell to the top 20 banks in the US or something. Yep. And that can be a two-year process. And that's like, that's a lot of time before you're really learning something and engage with a customer. That's right. And so, you know, how do you think about like customer discovery, right? And trying to figure out what your customers need. Do you have any best practices or ideas there? I think it's really important that the founders or the very top people in the company are heavily involved in this. I've always, you know, I was the third person at HubSpot and I was on the phone doing demos, trying to close deals myself, even though I had less of a sales background, more of a marketing background. Yep. Um, and I learned so much from those conversations. Um, and I think, frankly, you learn more from a sales conversation than you do from like a customer interview, just because you're, you're, you're basically interviewing the customer, but you're doing it for real. And you're kind of beta testing their wallet, uh, which is uh, the co-founder of um, SolidWorks and uh, Onshape. This guy named John Hirschtech always used to tell me, he's like, make sure you beta test customers' wallets, That's great. not just you know the features and things like that. 
Uh, and so I, I think the, the first thing is just go out there and just try to sell it and sell it to like a broad group and just see what the reaction is. Sell it to a couple of real small customers, sell it to a couple of bigger ones and just, just see and feel and take some notes after each conversation you have of what went well, what didn't go well, how far away you are from thinking you're about you're getting a deal done and things like that. And I do think that those, those conversations can be super informative. They also can be really informative for product strategy and roadmap and things like that too. Because you'll hear them ask like, oh, well, you're missing this feature. We really need this. Or what about this? Things like that. Anyway, once you have all that customer input and you've thought about all the things we've been talking about so far, I do think there's kind of four key go-to-market models that you should think about. First one, I would say, is kind of at the low end, which is what people are calling today is like product-led growth or you know, maybe used to be called freemium or uh, more of like an e-commerce model where there's some way where you don't have humans really involved in the sales process. It's great for low-cost product. It's great for products that have some virality built into them, some ability for people to sample and use the products before they buy them, things like that. Um, you know, great classic examples of this is you know Dropbox or products like that. Um, I'd say the second big model would be channel sales, and this is where you work with resellers or distributors in some way, and they're selling your product. You're cutting them in. You're giving them some margin for that, but you don't necessarily need to build as big a sales presence or hopefully not as big a marketing presence, although channel sales often requires a lot of marketing support yeah. um, and they're doing the selling. You're sort of selling through a channel and that can be a channel that exists that's selling other products similar to yours, or it can be you in some ways like create a new channel um, of companies or partners that didn't necessarily, weren't necessarily reselling things before. Right. Uh, that's actually what we did at HubSpot was okay. there's probably these marketing agencies that weren't selling software. They were doing marketing services uh, website design and SEO work and things like that. And we got them to become resellers of HubSpot. Yep. Uh, and now it's about half of HubSpot's revenue, which is over a billion dollars a year, is coming through that channel, which is interesting. Awesome. Um, then maybe around that size of deal or a little bit bigger, you can think about inside sales uh, and having your own team, but they're not traveling. They're sort of um, doing everything you know, by phone and video and things like that. And then by far the most expensive sales model is enterprise sales, where you've got field reps you know, meeting with people in person is the classic, like old school model of, you know, steak dinners and meetings yep. of the golf course and like all that kind of stuff. And it, it, it is old school. It is very expensive, but for certain product categories, it's also essential. And so when you're thinking about those four different models, clearly you're trying to match what type of product you have and who your end customer is. You know, I see a lot of people make mistakes though, when they do that. So a lot, I've seen a lot of people go the distributor model thinking that the distributor is just going to take care of all the sales for them and they don't have to support the distributor, for example. Yeah, that's right. I think that channel sales one can be a little bit of a trap for folks. Um, I think a couple of things. One is you're also, even if you do channel sales, you will probably have to do the first five, 10, 20 deals yourself yep. and then just give them the channel or sort of drag them along to all the calls and things like that and sort of show them how you're doing it. Yep. It's really hard for them to have the passion, the understanding for your brand new product, and frankly, for them to believe in it, unless you've kind of shown them a few times and gone through with them and they kind of like, oh, wow, this is, this is working. We can close deals on this. We can make money doing this. Um, so that's one aspect of it. And then the second aspect is it often requires a lot of sort of air cover marketing support yes. in terms of brand building and even lead generation. So I spent um, a number of years at SolidWorks uh, doing marketing there. And we had a 100% channel model. So customer calls the company up and says, $100,000, I want to buy your product. The next question we would ask is, oh, that's awesome. 
where are you located? Let's find a reseller that can sell it to you. Like we didn't even have a way to take an order directly, but we spent a lot of money in marketing. We were at, you know, back in the day, lots of trade shows we were doing. We actually, in the time, I helped them shift to a lot more digital lead generation. And so we did a ton more online, but we were generating all these leads and then shipping them off to the resellers. At the time, we were in the process of building like a CRM system that they could tie into with a partner portal. Yeah, but at yeah. the time, they were we were sending, uh, we had this, you know, Excel file that got broken up into, you know, automatically, but into each reseller would get like an Excel file every night with like their five or seven leads uh, as an email attachment, like every single night going to hundreds of resellers around the world. Uh, and that was something that we were doing that and sort of feeding them the leads, yep. even giving them marketing materials, things that they could yep. use, um, you know, templates, presentations, like positioning documents, training, like all those things. It can be, it can be a lot of work. It's the nice part is you don't need to hire all the sales reps in all the different geographies. That's right. And so it, you can sort of expand, I think, globally more quickly, but you're absolutely right. It, tons, it requires a ton of marketing support because if you don't do that, then you've got, you know, the reseller in Sweden doing things one way and talking about the product one way. And the, you know, the folks in Italy are doing it differently and somebody in Australia is doing it something, something else. And yeah. you kind of got this really disjointed thing. And then you end up with different customers with different needs, asking you for different features in the product. And it can get really complicated back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, when I think about channel sales, I think about, you know, I tell companies, you've got to initially create all those orders for your for your, the resellers to, to take, right? I mean, it's up to you to create those orders. So you are doing the sales uh, and the marketing. So it's, it's not just handed off to somebody else. You've definitely got to prime the pump uh, for yeah. sure, for sure. Um, so how do you think, so let's say you think about, okay, you picked your model, your go-to-market strategy, you know, how do you think about setting up your sales organization and your marketing organization to support that sales model? And I know this is a wide open question, but, you well, know, I, hiring the right people is important and setting them up properly is important. Those things are important. And I would say that, um, th this is where like, which of those sort of rough four models you're in comes into play. If you have a product-led growth model, you may not have any salespeople you're going to need a marketing team that is tightly intertwined with your product team yep. um, where you're using features in the product to help market the product. You're going to need a marketing team that really knows the product inside and out and sort of is filling that gap. Because a lot of times sales knows the customer really well. Marketing is going to need to know the customer really well in this model and things like that. Right. And you're going to need more of a marketing team where they're more comfortable doing things digitally at very large scale and low cost and things like that. As you move up in the channel, we talked about that a little bit. You're going to need to make sure, you know, you, you might even need some sort of sales folks as well that are sort of meeting with the channel partners and maybe right. managing, you know, instead of one sales manager managing six reps, they may have six channel partners that each have 10 reps. So they may have 60 reps. So you get a lot more leverage in that model, but you're going to need some of that as well. And then marketing is going to need to work hand in hand with the channel um, and be able to sort of, you know, create those materials and all the support and things like that. In a more inside sales model, this is one where the nice part about it is everything is in-house. You've got sales and marketing sitting together. The other half of HubSpot's business was inside, you know, sales, direct sales. Um, and we used to actually have the marketing and sales team sit like intermixed with each other. Yep. Like I had folks from the marketing team who would sit next to the folks of the sales team that they worked the most with. Yep. Um, and so you really need kind of a, a really well-connected machine. Um, and because everyone's in this typically in the same place or on the same team kind of working together, you can have those close-knit relationships. But in those cases, marketing has to do a ton of lead generation. Inside sales teams cannot be successful typically doing all their own lead gen. Uh, they just don't have enough time because they need to be closing a high volume of deals because right. the deals are typically a little smaller. 
So marketing really needs to spoon feed them, uh, you know, leads that are well qualified and set up to close in a relatively short time period. And at HubSpot, you know, we something like 85 to 90 percent of the deal sales were closing was coming from lead generation that marketing had done. Okay. Um, which if you do that well, then that, that inside model can work well. Yeah. Um, if that's too low and the sales reps are doing a lot of their own prospecting, the deal size is big enough, that's real hard. Uh, and then in the final model, you know, you've got typically very um, highly skilled sales reps out in the field because they need to close maybe only a handful of deals every quarter to hit their number and be successful. They may actually do a lot more of their own demand generation and lead generation Typically, marketing there is doing a lot more on the product marketing side, a lot more on the branding side and sort of making it easier for them to open some doors. But those are very typically much longer sales cycles. And so the sales reps need to be a lot more personal, personally involved. They can be a much more personal sale. Um, they need time to build some of those relationships and build up the trust and things like that. And so, again, it's a little different salesperson that you're hiring. Yep. And there's, you know, there's different things that you would do to sort of get them up to speed. That's great. Um, you know, we're just about out of time. I'm sure we'll hopefully do some follow-up videos to dive down into some of these topics, but, you know, any kind of final thoughts, uh, things, mistakes that you've seen that people should avoid or best practices that you absolutely tell everyone to follow or both. <laughs> I'll say, I mean, I'll say two things. I'll say one is, um, don't forget about service in this whole component too. So, um, you know, the way you have to think about service as a product-led growth company is very different than you think about it as, as an enterprise go-to-market company. Um, so don't forget about service. And then the second thing is that all of the times I've seen companies struggle and go to market, it's usually because there's not good alignment between the customer, the sales process, the marketing process, the service process, and the product. One or more of those are sort of disjointed and product is really trying to serve a little bit smaller customer and sales is going after a bigger customer and marketing. Some, and when those things are in alignment, the whole machine just kind of doesn't work as well as it should. So and true. so your job as the founders, the CEO, whatever, is to constantly think about aligning all those really well, keeping people focused, use customer personas to say, this is who we're selling to. Yep. Push people toward that too, because sales will naturally typically drift to bigger deals. You know, product will kind of drift to certain, you know, areas, things like that. You got to keep people constantly aligned because the problems come when all those different pieces are kind of not quite aligned. That's a great way to finish. Uh, fantastic advice. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope to have you on uh, future episodes as well. My pleasure. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Fundable Founder. Please go to our website at mass-ventures.com for more information on Mass Ventures and where you can also find other episodes just like this.